All right. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the show this week. And I thought this week we're going to talk about TikTok because we have our hands on the pulse <laughs> of the community. And I thought there would be no better way than to introduce my friend and my co-host with one of my favorite TikTok songs. Here it is. And at guard 6-4 from Kentucky, welcome to D.C. Number two, John it's, a, it's actually not John Wall. It's actually Matt Ray. And so, Ma- <laughs> Matt Ray, my question to you is, have you actually okay. ever seen a TikTok? Oh, have you sure. actually seen yeah. a video? Yeah, they, they, you know, they get embedded in Twitter. That's where I see them. <laughs> so I, I, don't have the, uh, I don't have the TikTok app. Um, I don't really plan on it. Uh, you know, aren't they sending all your details back to China or something? Probably. But I, I think Probably. I'm at a point where I actually I like TikTok. It's taken me a while to like really understand it. But I, I'm in. I'm in on it now. I don't know why. I think it's like a bag of Doritos. You know, you're not really that hungry. You start eating and like, you know, 30 minutes okay. later, the entire bag is gone. You don't feel great about yourself, but you're full. And, and TikTok yeah, yeah. provides that. That's, that's that's my relationship with Twitter already. Um, <laughs> and and why is TikTok better than Vine? All right. So this is my take on TikTok. This is my uh, having watched it for a while is like it's better than Vine because the, the videos are longer. I think I don't know exactly how long. OK, sure. 30 seconds or a minute. And I think it's gotten popular. This is my you know, sort of we'll, we'll do some business analysis. I believe the reason people like it is that for young people, let's say, it gives them a chance to, uh, if you will, get some, you know, some fame and glory amongst their, maybe their small peer group or maybe the large peer group. And, and it's sort of self-explanatory when you watch enough of them, because it seems to all be like lip syncing the songs and kind of doing funny things to songs. So it's kind of built into like, it gives you advice on like what to do. Whereas Vine... I think you kind of had to be like, figure something out, right? You had to be pretty creative or it wasn't necessarily obvious. Whereas I think TikTok, it has all the dances. You learn to dance, then you do the dance yeah. and then you share it with your friends. And then if you do the dance in just a slightly more interesting way, potentially you're going to get, you know, huge views. So that, this that is, appeal to me. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to know I like this. the ones that are just like, you know, I don't know, Jack Black singing in his backyard. Or, what are you know, your, um, are your children has have any of your children knowingly tried TikTok at your house? Have you actually seen it? Uh, no, no, my kids have not. Um, uh, they they are they they have an interesting relationship with social media. Um, <laughs> they they do a lot of a lot of Discord. Um, you know, talking to their friends. Uh, you know, really. So Discord. I, why 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 Discord? Not that it's bad, but um. I think the fact that people can stand up their own discords wherever they want, the decentralized nature of it makes it attractive to, I don't know, to, to the kids, uh, because, um, you know, one of them's not old enough to have, well, none of them have Facebook accounts. Uh, none of them are on Instagram. Um, the oldest is on Snapchat. Uh, apparently that's how his class was, uh, communicating, which is bizarre in itself. Um, (laughs) Uh, yeah, they've got Google accounts, but, um, you know, they don't, they, none of them use the G talk with their friends or any of that stuff. Uh, discord is very popular. Um, my daughter still is, you know, classic on the, the SMS. Um, 
you know a tremendous amount of that but the the, the boys uh discord is what they use to chat with their friends um yeah so uh i don't know what that means uh, <laughs> <laughs> i just know like uh uh you know i've i've logged into discord and i'm like okay how is this you know any better or any different it, it doesn't it doesn't do much for me but you know i've already got way too many messaging platforms as it is so uh i won't be i probably won't be picking up on the tiktok uh no you know, time. It's a constant, well, you know what you know, we have it, to do it's a constant struggle to get less social media in my that's life that's right well i was gonna say maybe we'll see if kote kote's kind of embraced the new short form video you know in I've his noticed. uh yeah. In his, uh, I guess we'll call it his, his extended time off taking care of children. He's, so he's, he's, he's an influencer. He is an influencer. So we'll have to see maybe if, um, if, if he's willing to start posting some of his videos. Because I think he's doing Instagram. We see him on Twitter. I think you even see him on LinkedIn. Will he branch out to um, TikTok? Well, the other thing that I wanted to bring up around this is that, you know, just kind of this notion of, you know, in business that um, – Nobody knows really anything. And I think you know, as far as I can tell, and this is the, the most recent example of it, TikTok, I don't know. I, it has hundreds of millions, maybe ver- borderline a billion users. And if you've ever watched TikTok, all the user, uh, it's all content is user generated. It's all essentially, you know, mostly young people doing singing, very low production value. But, you know, like I said, it is actually somewhat entertaining, even if it's not maybe the most highly intellectual way. But in the news this week was another startup. Uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg's uh, startup. He uh, and it's called Quidby. Have you ever heard of this one? Quidby. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, kind of, kind of coming at the opposite end of it. Right? right. So his whole premise has been what people want is highly produced short form video that you can watch, and I guess they're kind of you can both watch it in like I guess landscape mode as well as kind of like you know I guess just what is what's the other one? Um, Vertical. Yeah, vertical, right? So you can vertical, and when you turn it, they actually get you actually get like a different view of it. So it's kind of it is actually pretty cool. So I downloaded this and I watched one of these, and of course they like have a lot of famous people, and you know it's they're all really well made. I watched about three minutes of one. I thought it was boring. Deleted the app. Never been back. <laughs> uh, and so and they put it back so, to TikTok. Yeah, and this I was like, ah, just I'll go back to TikTok. And so you know Meg Whitman's involved. Tons of investors. I mean, it is. It has unbelievable $1.8 billion. And as of uh, the writing this week, they are cited they have 80,000 subscribers. That, so let me, let me translate you, Matt. That's not good. That's very bad. So TikTok, uh, 1 billion su- subscribers, let's call it. No real money on, spent on content at all uh, other than just like playing clips and having people dance. And then Jeffrey Katzenberg hiring maybe some of the smartest, best filmmakers in the world with Meg Whitman, highly established CEO, very successful, uh, they are completely failing. So, <laughs> so I think if we'd gone back a few years and I had asked you what was going to happen here, I don't know. I don't actually know what I would have said. Maybe we would have, you know, uh, maybe we would have said Jeffrey Katzenberg or maybe not, but it just shows you nobody knows anything. So, you know, no, <laughs> no one, no one was like, yeah, what people really want are kids dancing. They don't want this highly produced uh, stuff. So, so I feel bad for Jerry Katz or Jerry, uh, Jeffrey, Jerry, well, Jeffrey Katzenberg, but he did, uh, he did what I think all of the good executives do. He just, you know, basically vented to the New York times. I think it was, and he blamed the pl- pandemic uh, for lack of pro- product market fit. And so it's like, cause, I, cause people aren't locked up with their phones. Right. So, yeah. So like, but listen, <laughs> Hey, I've been there too. Like I've been there where like you launch a product, it doesn't do well. And like, everyone's just mad. 
and you, all you can do is blame people. So in this case, yeah. I never had to call the New York Times, and nor would they take my call and have to blame them. But I probably <laughs> would have been blaming the pandemic. Like if I had been somewhere and I didn't have the right numbers, that, I'd be like, pandemic's, uh, the pandemic's you, the problem. You can't go wrong. You cannot go wrong blaming the pandemic right about now. You know, it's just, you know, anything you don't like, you can blame it on the pandemic. And and so if if your product not doing well, blame the pandemic. If uh, Sales down, uh, pandemic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, looking looking through some of the other announcements uh, coming out from the last week or so, it's like, um, you know, uh, AMC movie theaters going out of business or whatever, you know. They're going to blame the pandemic, but you know they're not going to blame the fact that private equity just loaded it up with debt so they could drive it under. But you know, pandemic. Um, so it's uh, it's a convenient scapegoat. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not not saying it's uh, it's unreasonable. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes it is, and sometimes it's in this case. But I think it is also the case that uh, hey, people didn't want to watch short form, highly produced videos. There are like a million ways to watch that. So so maybe. You know, maybe someone could tell Jeffrey uh, Katzenberg that, and he probably heard that a million times and told him that he's very successful and he's going to be successful again. And it's like, well, go for it, man. You got the money, but well, we've all been there. We've all we've all yeah. launched bad things. You know, we just don't, don't always do it with a billion dollars. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, there's that uh, viral video going around about uh, uh, was the the there's a, a billionaire, uh, one of the guys who was involved in like the early days of uh, Facebook, uh, Shamath something. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. he's on MSNBC and they're talking about, you know, the bailouts. And he's like, let them fail. Let the airlines fail. Let them all fail. And, you know, the fact of the matter is like when QB or whatever it is fails, you know, it's not going to be normal people who are like, you know, hurting. Um, I, you know, I mean, some developers will be laid off, you know, the talent. Uh, probably not getting paid, but at the end of the day, it's just like, you know, it's billionaires losing, you know, millions of dollars or whatever, and they don't care. Yeah, he's getting. Uh, <laughs> he now it's owns not, the Warriors. I will right? say though, it does. I'm listen. I thought it was interesting to hear him talk, but you know, he is worth a billion dollars, and he's basically retired running like a, a private family office uh, of wealth management for himself. So it's like, well. You know, it's easy to say those kinds of things when you're in in such a position. So, but you mentioned Amazon before, and I wanted to talk about. So, it, in the uh, in the uh, in the vein of nobody knows anything, I think this is a funny story. So, we're, there's some Amazon news we'll get to in a second in the world of cloud computing. But uh, it came out; it was first reported that Amazon was going was in talks to buy AMC. People took this to mean they were going to buy the AMC movie theaters here in the United States, and of course, Amazon's at this point now that they can say anything. They could say they're going to come out and build an airline or buy airlines and people be like, makes total sense. They're just going to make it part of prime. Like it just doesn't matter. So what I think is funny is like, so there's all this speculation about what they're going to do about with the movie theaters. And of course, Amazon says nothing. They neither confirm nor deny. Right. And it goes on. Well, now it has come out that the per the, the people reporting it may have mixed up AMC American movie channel or uh, the AMC network that shows, you know, movies own stars <laughs> they own stars. They own uh, the AMC oh, channel or Mad Men. So there's, stars. so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so <laughs> it's come content. out that yeah. and the stock sign. So just so you know, the stock sign for the, for the TV network in, in subsequent movie is AMC X. Wow. And then the stock sign for the movie theater chain is AMC. So <laughs> 
just based nobody on this, knows anything. That's what I'm saying. Just based on both of these rivers. So AMC, the movie theater, was up like forty percent yesterday, and then now they've it's flipped around, and now the the AMC the uh, the the channel, the cable channel, and properties are up a ton, and so. It just goes back to what I say. It's like, yeah, you know, uh, I guess stock signs matter. And when you sometimes acronyms can be really bad. Like exactly what do you mean by that acronym? I I don't know what, you know, when I'm going to have a chance to take a company public, but my stock ticker is going to be AZMN uh, or AMZN uh, (laughs) or maybe APLE. You know, I mean, come on, people. Well, Um, it is amazing. And I think there's actually some famous ones that uh, Coca-Cola uh, in Coca-Cola Bottling Company, uh, the Coca-Cola Bottling Company has, has the sock sign Coke, so C-O-K-E, and then yeah. uh, Coca-Cola, the company that makes the drink, is, is different. And again, that often trades. People believe there's actually a premium because people are buying Coke, bottling. thinking they're buying the the soft drink wow. company, and they're buying the bottling factory. So, so there you have it, Matt. Nobody knows anything. That's that's what I want everyone to take away from this. I, you know, what, watching the news these days, I I find that easy to believe. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It absolutely does. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of of who knows what's going to happen, I see uh, VMware and Red Hat. It's it's open season. Yeah, so, there, uh, there's a good article here. I guess Sanjay Poonin, uh, we're saying is right from VMware. He gave it a nice little article. And um, a little interview to uh, about what's going on there. So you know he kind of came out. I think he kind of came out throwing some punches. That's how I took it. So he he comes out and says, I think VMware's goal is to have five thousand customers. And so I guess this is way threw a little shade. He said uh, Red Hat has said they have seventeen hundred customers of OpenShift after about ten years of working on the project. And then he goes on to say, as um, as as we that we being VMware acquired Pivotal Software and Heptio, we feel very good about our strategy. So it's just sort of like, oh, okay, it's taking you 10 years to get 1,700 customers. We're about to go get 5,000. And so my first yeah. question, though, is like on OpenShift, like, to set, I don't know. I have, I really don't know what the, the customer count is. Like, if I had asked you before you saw this number, would you have guessed higher? Does that seem high to you? Does it seem low to you? Or is it just about right? I'd like to know how many customers Red Hat has total, which I bet is a much larger number. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would assume that, you know, the way salespeople are probably incented is, you know, they, they get, you know, they have to throw in enough open shift in their deals to hit, you know, certain, um, you know, bonuses incentives, or whatever right. uh-huh. incentives. Right. And <clears throat> which means there's probably a lot of open shift sold that shelfware, um, you know, because it might be a zero cost item, but it gets, you know, the skew gets thrown in and it counts as a sale. Um, I'm just, you know, this is my experience <laughs> working with enterprise procurement. Um, and so there's probably, there's probably one, you know, a lot more Red Hat customers who are just buying REL. Um, there's probably a very large percentage of Red Hat customers who have uh, SKUs for OpenShift. And then, you know, there's a, an unknown quantity that um, have OpenShift actually deployed. And I've seen I've seen a lot of OpenShift that gets installed and not used. Um, I mean, just because you know it's free, right? right. I mean, it's you know it, it's free. You you got it. Well, let's go kick the tires on it. And 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 to be fair, I'm also seeing that from VMware now too, 
right? Where people are like, you know, oh, we got this big VMware, you know, all you can eat buffet, and they gave us Pivotal Cloud Foundry, um, and we installed it. Uh, you know, how can we move our, you know, Solaris 10 apps to it? And you're just like, here not, and then you go back to work. <laughs> um, well, you know, Solaris 10, it might be job apps, so so maybe that maybe there's some help there. But but the fact is like a lot of this is getting installed and not used. And there are a lot of, you know, and then this goes for all you know, cloud native stuff. I mean, it's it's hard to move these big enterprises um, forward fast. And, and so then it becomes a question of like, who's better, who's in a better position, you know, VMware or IBM to move people forward. And that's where the real fight here is like, you know, they can say, oh, you know, who will get to 5,000 first? It's going to be like, yeah, you know, these, the Venn diagram of their customer base overlaps a lot, right? right? There are a lot of Red Hat customers who are VMware customers, and IBM has sold a lot of VMware, right? And so then it's a question of, like, is IBM going to try to pick a bigger fight with VMware about, like, I don't know, trying to displace ESXi and, and vCenter and all that stuff? I don't think they're well positioned to. Um, you know, so, so they're gonna, they're gonna be in each other's customer bases for a long time. And, you know, then it's just like, who's, who's giving it, you know, who's giving better pricing on, on, uh, you know, P, uh, on, you know, Cloud Foundry versus, uh, OpenShift. I don't know. Right. I guess mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't know what the answer is. You know, the, the VMware guy, he seems really confident, but, uh, uh, having seen IBM in action in their large enterprise accounts, like don't count them out yeah. from you now being willing to being willing to, you know, sell stuff for $0 for the long-term gain. Well, it does have a, that feeling of uh, an ELA war. It's like, who can, uh, yes. who can, who can put enough of these products into the ELA? And then more importantly, who can then spend the next couple of years before the ELA renews getting it but, but, installed at the customer? Know, the, the sad thing is like, there's no space for startups here. well the other part i I thought was interesting he goes on to say because i was just sort of interesting like you know what's what's the vmware's take like what what kind of uh, shots are they taking here at red the other one they say here is that um this again being vmware the founders of kubernetes are uh, craig and joe they are both with vmware now so we feel very good about our mind share in the kubernetes community and it's like i don't know i mean that's true i mean i'm not saying i'm not denying that but i'm like does that at this point, like, does that matter? Like, do you feel like, oh, well, they've got the founders of Kubernetes. Like, we're going to go with them. It doesn't feel like that's going to be that big an advantage to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I, you know, uh, they're, they're nice folks. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, of course. And they're, they're smart they're, people, no, good no, no, people. There I are mean... a lot of smart people and, you know, really nice folks across the industry. But uh, I don't. You know, it, it, it's it's also uh, this is not a disparage of software. It's like the best software doesn't win. The best people don't win. Uh, there's a lot more to software sales and you know how this stuff works than just you know having the best and brightest. You know, a lot of it is just the enterprise slog of you know churning this stuff out, making sure it works, getting it you know uh, installed and actually used, getting the the customer onboarded and happy with it. And, you know, continuing to show success, um, you know, because 
uh, you know, just because you have, you know, the, the two founders from, from uh, Heptio is like, you've got 5,000 customers. They're not going to talk to, you know, maybe they'll talk to 50 of them, right? You're not going to, you know, you're not going to sprinkle on the goodness of these two guys across 5,000 people or 5,000 customers. And, and so, you know, honestly, you know, those two guys probably they'd probably like to be doing some engineering, but the reality is they're going to spend some glad handling time with you know the top twenty customers at least, uh, and probably they'll you know one of them will have twenty and the other will have a different twenty, right. uh, and they'll, they'll they'll be well compensated. But uh, you know the it's it's the enterprise game, right? Yep. It's it's your field engineers, it's your support, it's you know the sort of content that you make easy to consume. And, you know, the training and your TAMs and who, and so who's better at it? Yeah. yeah. Maybe, right, maybe yeah. said another way is like, you know, I trade the two founders for like 50 really great solution architects, <laughs> right? Any exactly. day of the week inside the enterprise. You're like, give me 50 solution architects that know this thing inside and out and are great with customers. And I'll give you the founders. Well, yeah, know, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. So, all right. So the other uh, couple of things inside of this, I thought were interesting. So we did a little uh, research here by that. I mean, just uh, inside the software defined talk slack. So one listener <laughs> said, uh, when he posted this, I won't, I'm not going to cite the source because I don't know if they want it to be so widely uh, talked about, but they said that the, the numbers for the 1700 numbers, they felt were pretty suspect, meaning that it was a little bit high. They thought that was potentially installs, not actually customers. So I was like, okay, that's interesting. And it seemed like he maybe had some sales interactions around buying it. So I don't know. So maybe I'm going to call it like, I'm going to, I'm leaving this thinking to myself, it's about a thousand customers. That's what, that's who's got open shift and is doing something right there. You, you think like a thousand production grade installs? I think so. That's going to be my guess. Maybe that's still high. I don't that's, know. That's, that's pretty good. I, I think mean, it would be great. Yeah. I think if I yeah. was Red Hat, I'd be like, that's fantastic. And then the other thing that Red Hat has announced this week related to this is that they are now um, partnering with AWS. So it's been possible to install OpenShift on AWS for a while. But now they're going to come out with, I think, a man a Amazon's coming out or AWS coming out with a managed OpenShift offering. So that's really interesting, right? So um, you know, clearly, if you want to use OpenShift and you're, you're committed to the private cloud, now you can run it on AWS and you don't have to manage it, right? That's really what I think um, well, the and, point and, is there. And that's, I mean, we, we've seen time and time again when, when something succeeds, Amazon implements it, right? And, and makes their own version of it. They've never thrown up a cloud foundry. Um, and, you know, maybe it's a distraction from all the other, you know, native cloud platforms they have, but it's like, they, they, they're they perfectly happy to offer, you know, 19 different databases. And um, so I, I, <clears throat> I'm, I'm questioning, you know, why Amazon hasn't uh, launched a Cloud Foundry as a service or as far as I'm aware, Microsoft or Google either. Um, is it too close to what they're doing? Uh, you know, well, I think we should wait to see that. I mean, I, right? what about, uh, you know, Tanzu when that thing's, you know, I, I would expect to see a set of partnership announcements oh, yeah. Yeah. you know in the not too distant future and, and to give uh red hat equal time here so red hat uh vice president of host of platforms satish i'm not gonna say his last name he said um so his, his take on it was that it's a clear path to hybrid cloud deployments the idea that being that you run OpenShift on-premise as well as on aws so it makes sense so the the one takeaway and i think you hit on it before was we know aws is always very serious about taking customer feedback. So we read into this that they didn't just do a partnership because, you know, IBM wanted to do a partnership is that they believe 
that a segment of customers really wanted to run this on AWS, which kind of back to our installs just a few minutes ago, maybe that gives us a sense that they are seeing a little bit more traction recently. Because otherwise you would think AWS wouldn't do it or you can be more cynical and just be like, well, AWS doesn't care. They're just like, run anything here. We just want it all. Run. So, uh, but I, I well, thought that was a good sign. I thought it was a good sign for OpenShift, in my opinion. How, how, how many machines does it take to stand up an OpenShift deployment? <laughs> I, didn't know, I didn't know there was going to be, this is going to be a test. I don't know. Well, well, I know you I can mean, do it I, in one. Anecdotally, I've heard, uh, you know, PCF and uh, OpenShift take a lot of machines, a mm -hmm. lot of infrastructure. Right. And maybe Amazon's, you know, happy to just pass that on to uh, the host, you know, to the managed partnership. And they're like, well, first off, you're going to pay for these 30 boxes to be up all the time. Um, <laughs> so Amazon's taken their pound of flesh before it even gets to the customer. Um, but then that also, also means like, well, the only logical place for VMware to go with their, you know, hosted Tanzu offering is Google, right? Cause mm -hmm. you know, they, they kind of hate Microsoft right. and, um, you know, Oracle's not exactly, uh, friends with, you know, VMware either. So, uh, you know, at least, uh, IBM Red Hat grab the, uh, the, the sweet Amazon partnership first. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, I expect eventually there'll be the Tanzu and GCP offering. It's probably already there. Cause I think there is that where pivotal cloud foundry had their SaaS offering there. Oh, did I don't it know. again, test questions. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't study. I didn't Sorry. prepare. Uh, we, we need, we need Kote to answer. Our, we do. Our, That's our, right. We're setting up, we're setting up all these questions up for Kote's yes. trying to return. A reckoning. Yes. Yeah, he can uh, straighten this out. Well, I do think, you know, the other part of this, and I think the GCP is a whole other question around, you know, Anthos, right? So again, I know it's probably not apples to apples, but if I've uh, built all my applications on containers, you know, clearly Google, uh, and you wanted to run in a hybrid cloud scenario, right? Clearly uh, Google would be more than happy for you to help you do that with Anthos. So, you know, so in the end, I it's it's like everything's going to be everywhere at the beginning, yeah. right? You're going to have your OpenShift, your hosted OpenShift, but, your you Tanzu, know, your hosted Tanzu, AWS, your Anthos. AWS already has the the VMware partnership yeah. around the, the the hosted VMware stuff. So, mm -hmm. um, and I don't know. It may maybe you can be like you can get Tanzu on AWS, or you can get your OpenShift on AWS, and you know the real winner there is AWS. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that is, it is kind of back to this whole, all this discussion between uh, Tanzu and OpenShift. It is, it does kind of feel like, well, in the end, Amazon's just like, we're, we're just going to win. We're, we're taking all the business. So um, I don't know. It really will be interesting to see because I mean, I, I, it would be interesting you know, kind of back to our, like, if we say if it's a thousand or even if it's 2000, I don't know. It doesn't seem like Amazon's going to sweat that too much, right? They're just going to take care of those 2000 customers, OpenShift, and then go sell all the ECS and all the infrastructure they can possibly sell to customers. It's working out all right for them. Maybe they'll buy an AMC. <laughs> Maybe they'll buy an AMC. All right. Well, speaking of Amazon, Matt, this is, I thought this was going to be something that was near and dear to your heart. You know, it's YAML and it's, uh, <laughs> you know, and no one, you know, can get enough talk about YAML. And so AWS this week, they have open source the d cloud development kit uh, to make Kubernetes easier to use. And it has uh, this incredibly useful name, uh, CDK8S. I don't even know how you say that, but I guess we'll just call it Cloud Development Kit. CDKs. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> there needs to be a phonetic spelling of all these things. Because then what is it? Did we ever agree on what is the Kubernetes command line? Is it Cuddle or kubectl or like, what, what, I, don't even, I don't even know how to say that. Kubectl. 
<laughs> Sorry. I'm... All right. So this is what it's, uh, it's going to do. So AWS uh, Cloud Development Toolkit tackles the issue by making it possible to work with frameworks using the popular TypeScript, Python, Java, and .NET programming languages. Using the languages, advanced features, engineers can write more sophisticated configuration logic than what YAML supports to automate manual tasks. So, you know, this is, you know, as we've talked about before, as you've talked about probably more than me, is that people hate YAML. They don't want to write YAML. So now, instead of writing YAML, you can write TypeScript, Python, Java, or .NET, and it will output YAML. So my question to you is, have we made the problem better or worse by doing this? Well, I'm going to say the problem, I'm going to say it's better. The reason it's better is um, when you have a YAML uh, type language, people try to start shoving logic into it. And first it's, you know, it's simple templating, you know, variable substitution. And then they're like, you know, we really need some conditional logic in this YAML Mm -hmm. and, and things YAML is not a programming language. Um, It's a, you know, it's a markup language. It's not meant to have any sort of, you know, dynamicism to it. Uh, But that's what people eventually try to do to it. Um, you know, Chef recently introduced uh, a YAML mode, and immediately people are like, "Can we have templating? Can we have you know logic?" And we're like, "No." <laughs> you know, it's like the whole idea was. Wait, what is know, the write, go back? What does the Chef YAML mode do? What does that do? You can so so you know. Let's say you have a a recipe, a Chef recipe that is you know I want to install a package and write a template and. Um, and and you know start and register a service you know that's that's really simple config management that doesn't have any logic or any flow to it and so normally in chef that would be like you know package you know install template source destination and you know it's really simple ruby uh you know it's a dsl for ruby but also like you could easily represent that as YAML, and so that's what we did. Oh, okay. Was we made it so you can, if, you know, if you really want your recipes to be written in YAML because they're, you know, drop dead simple, um, you can write them in, in YAML. Uh, the idea being is like people like YAML for some reason. Okay. So, and so but for those so who are not just familiar, right to Ruby. So, but just go back. I was going to say go back. So basically, you're saying you can write it in YAML in lieu of writing it in Ruby, right? Yes. You just want to write so that so somebody that doesn't want to get into Ruby, doesn't know Ruby, or just thinks it's faster to write YAML. Right, that's right. what they're going right. to do. Yeah, yeah. And, and and the the idea there is like when they start asking for things like templating and logic and talking to APIs, it's like, well, you do know that this is still Ruby. Because all it does is like, you know, translate the, the you know, uh, YAML into, you know, the Ruby constructs that, you know, it's backended by. And then, you know, so the, and and you can easily switch it back into that uh, and once you've gone into Ruby, you're like you can't really go back because they're, you know, the YAML versions of those things don't exist. Right. But for all the simple stuff, yeah, go nuts. You know, mm-hmm. YAML, uh, you know, you get your spacing right and it's fine. Um, and so <clears throat> that's kind of like where where we landed with it. And so looking at this CDK, CDK eight S, I like it. You know, because um, people want to think about their infrastructure as code, and YAML is not a programming language. And so, um, 
you know, they, they, they've got, uh, you know, three or four languages already. It's open source. They want more people to contribute other language bindings to it. You know, there are already language bindings for, uh, for other similar things. You know, there's uh, Sparkle Formation for like Cloud Formation and Terraform's got some, you know, code to Terraform generators. Um, so, you know, if you've got an intermediate markup language as representing your infrastructure, then yeah, code makes even more sense. Because uh, this stuff is, eventually people want to generate it. And it's better to work with code because you can, you know, put it in the IDE and have, you know, as, as we can see in the demo, auto-completion and, you know, you can add linting and all sorts of fun stuff. Um, so I'm in favor of CDK8Ss. Uh, I I think they could work on the name. I think they could no, maybe, no, maybe rethink fine. the name, workshop that a little bit. No, what are you going to call it? Like, you know, Ponyworks or something? I mean, I like it. Ponyworks, gotta... I could say it and spell it. Done. I'm in. But, I mean, you know, as, as, as hard as it is to say, it's kind of the intent is understandable. And so, so hopefully, you know, they're going to package up, you know, some linting tools, some, you know, some of the other developer kit isms to go with it. I, I like it. You know, bindings for other editors, you know, good stuff. All right. But now let's take a step back. So I think this is always an interesting. Um, it's always interesting to say, like, how did we get here? So at the beginning, I'm writing a small web app, small web application. Right. And that's what I'm going to do. Maybe this good old point of sale terminal kind of thing. And then, I'm, yep. all right, well, then I'm deploying it on some infrastructure. Gets a little complicated. I want to do some load balancing and I want to do some packaging. So, so maybe I move to, you know, one of these platforms, maybe I embrace Kubernetes because I want to run the code that I wrote, which was my point of sale terminal. It's like, okay, I get the Kubernetes going. I get it containerized, but then suddenly I need to configure it. So I'm just editing some text files. It's like, okay, well, that's getting a little complicated. And then I find myself, in order to generate the right configuration files, I'm now back to writing code <laughs> to then yes. output the YAML files to run the Kubernetes correctly to run my point of sale terminals. And then at some point, like if you keep, like if it just keeps like recursive going down, it's like, well, what, how do we configure the <laughs> development tools to do the right thing. And then you kind of go, you know, get into the CICD. And then suddenly it's like, well, wait a minute, this is pretty complicated. We need another set of config files that help us set up our configuration management. And we'll just make that, you know, let's go back in time. We're going to make that XML. And then, you know, that, that, then we come back and then again, we, we find ourselves, sure. somebody writes an XML generator. So I just think it's like, whoa, like sometimes I, I almost feel like maybe we should just admit these should always be paired together. If you are writing a configuration file of any kind, you might as well just embrace the programming language simultaneously. You know, don't don't just do one or the other. Do them at the same time. Be like, well, here's the file format and here's the programming language to do it. Because it does seem like it's always one or the other. And then we're kind of reverse engineering um, one part of it all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean... I, I can I can see that angle, but but also you you gotta you, you don't want to you don't want to waste a lot of engineering cycles um, writing you know this whole developer kit experience without you know knowing that there's a need for it right because um, yeah I, I it's it seems like if if they had started with the developer kit they probably would have gotten caught in this like you know death cycle of you know, well, the developer kit 
can do this and someday somebody's going to want this and so now we need to make that expressed in the the yaml and then we need to go back into the engineering to do this thing and instead you know you i i would i would hate to see the see getting to the point where people are like this api seems incomplete we need to go do development to fill out the api mm, right <laughs> whereas you know i like to think that Kubernetes growth so far has been fairly organic right. where, you know, they, they're like, Hey, we're going to try some stuff and let's not get too caught up in it yet. We'll slap some alpha tags on it for a while, you know, kick it around and then, um, you know, give it a few, you know, give it a few releases to bake. And now we'll call it 1.0. Now we can go and, and, you know, actually throw, uh, you know, we can call it a 1.0. We can put an API around it. And that's when the developer kit should kick in. Right. Because, you know, you'd hate to, you'd hate to have a whole bunch of like, you know, developer kits trying to chase an API that is, well, it happens. It, yeah, happens. it definitely happens. But, no, I, yeah. I guess I, you know, I kind of come back to like, I, it's, it seems in some ways it seems like well overdue and, and who knows, maybe if I did some more searching, maybe somebody has already done something like this, but to have Amazon behind sure it, right. It's it, yeah. it's just going to yeah, become well, super popular. Yeah. You know, this is the new standard. So lean into it. Yeah. We're all, we're all in. So, but I do think there is this moment though of uh, maybe I'll just represent the business owner, you know, the quote unquote business owner where it's like, wait a minute, I'm just trying to build a point of sale terminal. And now I got like, you know, three layers of code and YAML and you guys are writing code that generates YAML, which generates configurations for Kubernetes. And I just, I just need my point of sale terminal. I just need to, you know, sell my records, sell my widgets. Uh, so at times it does yeah. feel like you can fall down the, uh, it's almost like a YouTube rabbit hole. You can fall down the rabbit hole where it's like, suddenly you're like, where are we? What are we doing? And how did we get here? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's how most software works. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll go, back, well, go back to first principles. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Matt, listen, maybe all software works like that, but all software needs to be protected. And that's why I want to welcome in our sponsor this week, StrongDM. Today's show is sponsored by StrongDM. And are you transitioning your team to work from home, managing a gazillion SSH keys, database passwords, and Kubernetes certs? Meet StrongDM. Manage and audit access to servers, databases, and Kubernetes clusters, no matter where your employees are. With StrongDM, easily extend your identity provider to manage infrastructure access, automate onboarding, offboarding, and moving people within roles. Grant temporary access that automatically expires to on-call teams. Admins get a full audit trail into anything anyone does. When they connect, what queries they run, what commands are typed, it's full visibility into everything. For SSH, RDP, and Kubernetes, that means video replays. For databases, it's a single unified query log across all database management systems. StrongDM is used by companies like Hearst, Peloton, Betterment, Greenhouse, and SoFi to manage access. It's more control and less hassle. StrongDM, manage and audit remote access to infrastructure. Start your free 14-day trial today at strongdm.com SDT. Again, that's strongdm.com SDT. And of course, we thank StrongDM for sponsoring our show. Now, Matt, there was more news. Um, I'm going to call this, uh, I'm going to call it, I, I was going to call it the Matt Ray, but maybe we should call it the Cote. The Eclipse Foundation is picking up and they're going abroad. They're going from the United States and they're moving to Europe. So my question is, uh, you know, because they can talk about the reasons why. And the, the reasons they give is, you know, they feel like most of their uh, user base or their contributors and a lot of their projects are in user. What is your take? Does the Eclipse, do they really need to move to Europe? Is that going to radically change things 
for us, for them, or for the users? <laughs> Not for us. Um, <laughs> you know, probably, probably it makes it easier uh, for conferences, international conferences. Um, you know, I know that uh, recent, recently there's been a, you know, a kind of a downturn in, uh, and conferences being held in the U.S. Uh, you know. Uh, OpenStack exhibited some of that, um, where when you have a large contingent of overseas contributors, um, they, you know, it's been getting harder to visit the U.S. You know, uh, we don't need to blame the pandemic for that. That was happening uh, beforehand. Um, and so probably the Eclipse Foundation, uh, you know, said, hey, most of our contributors are coming from Europe. Um, and it sounded like, you know, uh, reading through the article briefly, um, that it was easy to establish a foundation in Belgium. There were probably some tax advantages and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, they, they they went to Europe. They've gone to so, Europe, yeah. maybe, but not just for the <laughs> summer. They're they're coming back. And I guess a couple of stats here. They said with over 170 of our member organizations and more than 900 of our committers based in Europe, the Eclipse Foundation is, by those measures and and others, already the largest open source organization in Europe. So, I mean, it does make sense. I mean, be closer to your users and things like that. Um, but they kind of, they go on to uh, great lengths to say that kind of, even in the announcement, they pretty much say nothing will change. I mean, kind of sort of like the mailing address and the city or, of incorporation will be a little bit different, but everything else is the same. I don't know. You know, It did raise this question. I don't know. What's the biggest foundation here? If the Eclipse is moving on, like, what would you say is the biggest foundation? Is it CNCF now or uh, well, something else? Yeah. So yeah, Linux Foundation. I guess it's like, yeah, all all one thing. So I don't know. I guess Linux Foundation. Are they still here? Still in the United States? What's going on with them? I think so. All right. Well, they need to move. <laughs> I was gonna say, they need to move to uh, to Australia. Then that's that's the only important thing, right? Yeah. We... I mean, <clears throat> uh, I, I love Australia. Uh, I I hope to stay here for a while. Uh, I don't think it's very practical to move your uh, your cloud foundations out here. The the internet can't handle it. <laughs> Uh, so, so maybe maybe somewhere with a little more bandwidth, like a South Korea or well, even a Singapore. Go. South Korea now they've got they've got they've probably all got gigabit at their homes, yeah. right? Maybe they maybe they got ten gigabit at this point. My phone is faster than my home network, so it's sad. <laughs> nice, nice. All right, well, there's some security things I thought we should talk about this week as well. Uh, one, I don't know. This seemed like a Matt Ray special here. So Thunderbolt. Flaws expose millions of PCs to hands-on hacking. Like, do I really need to be worried about this, Matt? Is this something? I mean, am I going to have to like just start pulling out <laughs> Thunderbolt cards out of my my computers just to pre- prevent something? Probably not. I mean, it's uh, it's it's <clears throat> it's the the classic uh, evil maid scenario. You've got uh, you know you left your laptop in the the hotel room and uh, you know some um, maid with room access plugs something into your de- your uh, device. Uh, and and takes it, it takes it over. Um, first off, uh, it didn't affect Microsoft or Apple devices. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, I think that just covered off you and me. Um, <laughs> so who, what's left? Uh, We're talking just like Linux. Like what? Like who, yeah, who's who's Lenovo, most vulnerable to this? Uh, it's it's a hardware. Uh, okay. It's a hardware hack. Um, so um, you know, so Lenovo and and Dell and HP and you know Samsung. Um, I assume, you know, they're all, they only pointed out that Microsoft and Apple weren't susceptible. So, you know, those other vendors are, um, 
but there are apparently there's no uh, software mitigation for it, so that always kind of sucks. Ooh, ooh, but not good. honestly, like I'm gonna blame the pandemic for this. Nobody's going to hotels. <laughs> Nobody needs to worry about evil maids. Stay bad. home. Take, leave your laptop at home. Take your I, phone. Maybe, maybe your iPad. Uh, just take that to the next time you're on the road. That's right. Protect it from your children. Your children are the only your only inside insider yeah. threats at this point. No, no evil maids in quarantine. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's true. That's right. We make our own beds. We clean our own houses. Everything is fine. There's nothing to worry about. Well, what about this one? I thought this is something you've talked about before, um, and I thought it was interesting. So Microsoft adds initial support for DNS over HTTPS. Uh, and, um, so I think that's interesting. So I was reading up on this a little bit. So I, I guess you can now go configure most of the, well, I think Chrome and Firefox, right? You can use DNS over HTTPS. Safari on the Apple side is not there yet. Um, but even that seems to be amongst the, the people who are interested in this, there's some frustration that DNS is supposed to be really the responsibility of the operating system, not the browser. So it, I kind of read this to be like, okay, it sounds like Microsoft is going to embrace this and some future version of Windows, you know, you could either set it up as the default or maybe it will be the default DNS over HTTPS. Um, and then I haven't seen anything about on the Mac OS side, so I, but I would assume that they're working on it as well. So is this the future? Will, we, will all the, the next revs of the operating systems do DNS over HTTPS and break the internet? What's going to happen? Uh, it's not really going to break the internet. Uh, it is going to break all of our, uh, uh, as, as parents, you know, the parental controls where you block things via DNS. Yep. <laughs> I do know exactly what sense. that is. Uh, it kind of sucks. So um, will this work? Hey, so what I use Cloudflare, they have one, um, they have like a kid friendly one, you know, um, I've used, and I think open DNS had one too, right? You can, so will something like that exist? Like, I guess it really wouldn't, I don't know. I guess you can't really encrypt it. Like, yeah, will, yeah, yeah. will there be I mean, a version yeah. that I'll be able to uh, put my, on my right. son's laptop sure. and his stuff? Sure. Yeah, I mean, so so all this is saying is, like, people won't be able to tell what your DNS requests are, mm-hmm. right? So so right now, you know, DNS is over HTTP. It's clear text. So, you know, I go to DNS and I say, hey, give me CNN.com. And it's like, you know, it's, you know, 12.7. whatever. Right. And in the future, it'll be, I will connect to DNS and I'll say, hey, DNS, uh, I want to talk to you secret, you know, in, in private. And DNS is like, okay, HTTPS. And then I say, you know, uh, I want to go to CNN. It's like, you need to do that to be secret? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, I mean, DNS over HTTPS will happily say, uh, here you go. But as the middle, you know, as the man in the middle, I will have no idea what's being asked for. Right, but I can still. I would assume all the Cloudflare Open DNS, they will still have a let's call it a uh, a parental DNS where I can yeah, set yeah, it up, yeah, yeah. and they just, will have all the same rules, like, right? Yes, you know exactly. All, all right, you know, here's where you go for your DNS, and your kid will say, "That's cool. I'm going to go to you know 8.8.8.8 and get around your parental controls." Yeah, all right. That's <laughs> well. That's true. <laughs> oh, wait, did I just say what happens in my house? Don't don't don't, don't say that. Well, I, my son's not quite. He's just not smart enough. No, I just say he hasn't delved enough into DNS. So, all right. It's so, a, Cloudflare is going over a VPN, right? Yeah, yeah. We just need. I just need these. I need everyone on this before we. Uh, everyone switches over to this DNS over HTTPS. I need at least one of them to you know hook me up with a parental DNS at least for another couple of years before my son can figure out eight 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 on a, on his own. So, I mean, because I I don't know. That, that worries me. 
they can Google for it. That's right. That's right. Well, my son, unfortunately, he has a Google account now and he's not 13. So that means when he's logged into Google, he's not allowed to watch YouTube, which is incredibly frustrating to him. And I was teaching him, was like, well, you have to log out now and you have to have a separate browser. I was showing him like, you have to have that separate browser where they don't know who you are. And he was, he was very frustrated that I was like, listen, hey man, the world is tough. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. You're not 13. Anytime anything on the computer doesn't work, it's your fault. <laughs> yes, it is. There yes. is. I mean, tech support at home is about as brutal as it gets, right? I mean, yes. it really is. I mean, everything is, is your fault. Everything is your fault. And it is just, I mean, it is just brutal. There, I mean, you talk about no positive reinforcement. I mean, it really is. It is, <laughs> it is preparing everyone for the corporate world. It's a, it's a brutal environment. Uh-huh, All right. Well, man. this other one I love, <laughs> but uh, Microsoft is, is going to try to put together Put um, put to end the reply, reply all email storms. So as we talked about a few weeks ago, and I think um, maybe we've all been part of one of these. You know, you get on a, a big email chain, somebody accidentally replies all to like thousands of people, and it just creates um, even more people replying, saying take them off the list, and it creates an incredible amount of email. So Microsoft has come out, adds protections. Looks like they're going to automatically detect these things and then warn users or maybe stop users from actually replying back to these reply all email storms. So my question, do you think this will actually fix the problem or will there be some unintended consequences of this? And it will will spark a new set of uh, issues. In its current form, (laughs) reply all storm protection feature will block all email threads with more than 5,000 recipients. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> that have generated more than 10 reply all sequences in the last 60 minutes. It's, it's pretty easy. You, you, you do this at the client side. You say uh, reply all and you hit yes. And then it says uh, this is going to more than 10 people. Are you sure? Mm-hmm. And, and, and honestly, that is like the 90% solution. Mm-hmm. You know, because most people are like, oh, okay. You know, I didn't mean to send it to, you know, 50,000 people. Um, it's it's actually kind of simple. Now, the problem, of course, is when it gets into like aliases and stuff like that, that kind of kicks back to the back end. Maybe that's where this is happening, because I would like to think and it probably, you know, I, I'm, I'm using Gmail. So I, I'm I'm a Luddite. Is that a Luddite? I don't know. No, no. People um, are saying I, like there's a lot of clients have the uh, mute this thread. You could just hit it and basically just do it on the client side. You just say mute, right? And just never see another email from that. So that's that's another solution here. And I do. Well, that, 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 yeah. But I, I just think like client side, this should have been fixed, right? <laughs> and then on the back end, when you have to worry about aliases and how many you can go into, you can have your Outlook get smart talking to Office 365 if it was still a problem. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like it was still a problem. Like they'd never had the, you know, are you sure you want to send this to everyone? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting. I, I, I think it's, it's, yeah, it's just a human solution. It's right. just, you know, make sure you want to do that. Well, the number I think is interesting because, you know, they, for 5,000, but it's like, I, I, has someone done a study? Like, like how many people have to be on an email thread? before it becomes like a storm, right? Because I don't know. So like, you know, five or 10, you know, that seems pretty safe. Like, but I think it's just a couple hundred, like you just get a couple hundred people oh, yeah. going yeah, yeah, yeah. and there's some, it's kind of like this mom mentality where everybody loses their mind, like all really individually we're intelligent, but if we're in a mob then we can potentially act, it, act poorly. Probably, and I think this is what happens like, on the email. You know, if, if one in a thousand people are mindless zombies, well, you know, you, you hit that number and you know, you get <laughs> no. enough mindless zombies. It's like, you know, when people talk about something happening, you know, oh, what are the odds? You know, one in a million. It's like there's seven and a half billion people on this planet. It happens, you know, lots of times every day. So, 
All right. Well, we're going to miss it. I, I don't think it's over. I think there's going to be reply all storms. <laughs> but, you know, if it's over, it was a good time. I, I'm going to still I'm going to tell stories, you know, to, to the young people 10 years from now. Like, there was a time an email storm could take over your computer for weeks, you know, so enjoy it. All right. Well, a couple of things we'll, we'll hit quickly. I just think they're just random, interesting things. Like one, it sounds like Apple's hiring uh, a ton of the, the cloud talent. I see more and more of the people working on Kubernetes and all this advanced your guys. Yeah. So like, what's going on? Like, what are they doing? Do we, do we have any idea? Like, is there going to be an Apple Kubernetes distribution show up one day? Ah, they probably just need it for maintaining their, their internal or their, their own platforms. That's what yeah, I figured. They run a lot of infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. I, hope I don't, so. I don't, nobody wants to get in this enterprise software game. <laughs> yeah. Especially on Apple. So it just means we'll get like, uh, more Memojis with uh, Kubernetes or something. That's probably what no. that, that's good. The take is. <laughs> um, the other one is, uh, you know, because we are the world's number one podcast uh, about um, Fortnite. What did you think yes. of the new Epic uh, Games Unreal Engine Five? Uh, they had a, a PlayStation Five demo running. What was your take on watching it? Wow. So uh, this, I think this came out yesterday or something. Um, it is. Uh, I, we don't talk about gaming very often. Well, except for Fortnite, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but this uh, technology demo was uh, stunning. Um, I mean, it, it looked like, you know, uh, it looked like somebody walking around in the Mandalorian um, <laughs> in real time. Well, which is, you know, the Mandalorian used the Unreal Engine for all of its uh, CGI. And mm-hmm. everything was I generated. I did not know that. That's yeah. all, that is oh, impressive. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Watch those Disney Plus. Uh, you know, there are a couple of... Uh, you know, behind the scenes documentaries about the Mandalorian, everything was done in Unreal Engine. Wow. And, and so they, they, you know, all the backdrops, you know, they had just some big green screen sets and, uh, or they weren't green screens, actually, they were projector screens. And so the, the, the crew, the, 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 the actors could see the backdrops that they were going to be green screened onto. You know, so they were showing them like medium res versions okay, of what so they, they could kind of see the, the scene. If yeah, you all right, yeah. that's cool. Then you know, later on, they could just up upgrade them. You know, upgrade the quality for release. You know, but so the actors, you know, it looks to them like they are in a you know in a spaceship or you know on a cantina. I mean, there were very few real sets. That's what's crazy about it. Is almost everything was was. It's not. I guess it's CGI, but it's kind of not CGI. Uh, it's really amazing. Um, and so the quality of this gaming engine, is just jaw dropping, um, because it's, you know, it's a technology preview. It's a year out from release and it looked, you know, uh, they said it was you know, running on, uh, PlayStation five hardware. Um, so that's gonna be interesting. It sounds like these next set of consoles, um, are really going to be pretty amazingly powerful. So I don't know. I, I don't know. It feels like PlayStation is has the early lean here. I don't know. So it'll be interesting to see what Xbox comes out with, but it sounds like well, the hardware is going to be pretty heavy hitting this time. Yeah. I mean, the, the real winners are, uh, uh, you know, the guys who own unreal engine, cause it'll run on both <laughs> and they get a cut out of everything that runs on. Yeah. Unreal you know, engine. I, is there even a competing platform at this point? Like, is there someone that another engine that people are even working on? I mean, it feels like unreal is just cause like my son, I just like through him, it feels like every steam game, Right is like some version of like an Unreal Engine kind of thing, um, with some you know different varyings of polish. But like, is there? I don't even. I don't even know. Could you do something else? Is somebody doing? Is there another <laughs> engine out there you even grab? I, I'm sure there are, but you know, I'm not. I'm not. Again, I'm you know, I'm not in, in the gaming scene enough to know. 
but yeah, it seems like everything's unreal these days. There, I'm sure there are though. All right. Well, listen, you know, that's, that's, um, that's going to be, you know, as the number one gaming podcast on the internet, we'll do some research next time and see if anybody <laughs> else has done so. All right, man. Well, let's, uh, let's give some, um, some kudos here to our friends at Datadog. Datadog, I think was mm, almost one of our earliest sponsors here. So, you know, we, we of course love them, but it turns out they, Datadog, uh, as of, I guess, yesterday, they are now worth about $20 million. I think their lockup for all their employees has officially expired, so they can all sell that. And two of the co-founders, I think, are at least billionaires on paper. So, Matt, um, so one, we should be congratulate them, both, all of them, everyone that works at Datadog, congratulations. And then now we yeah, should well be be very sad that we chose not to work at Datadog, but various other <laughs> monitoring startups that did not, um, we did, did not do as well. I'll just say that N- none of them went on to the success there. So, so why don't you just go ahead and in a nutshell, explain to us why Datadog went on to be so incredibly successful while some of the places we worked, we'll just say less successful. It's too painful. <laughs> <laughs> it's too painful to confront. Uh, no, no, no. I mean, c- congratulations. Uh, you know, they, they made a very, um, a very strong effort to be, you know, on the on the forefront of of you know the whole DevOps thing and making it easy to consume and rode all the right waves. It's uh, you know, it's a good product. Uh, everybody's a um, lot of great folks there. So uh, well done. Yeah, so I, I think remember. maybe maybe they're the ones who can say like, yeah, we took on Nagios and we won. We won, Brandon. We got twenty million dollars. No, no, what no, are you no. doing? Nagios is still there. Don't so worry. I, I was gonna say, no matter what, Nagios is still the number one systems management platform in the world. I don't care if you call it observability or, I don't care if we keep renaming it. It's still Nagios is the most widely but you deployed. Nagios and a data dog. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So, well, congratulations to them, and I think we know some people there. So, congratulations to all of them. All right, so conferences this week, Matt, uh, ChefConf still coming June second, twenty twenty. Although they can go watch your session right now, isn't that correct? Yep. You, you've yeah, done yeah, yeah. your stuff. You're you're already yeah, checked out. We're I am a bit checked out. Um, yeah, the uh, rather than try to fit everything into you know oh, twenty four hours of of ChefConf, um, we've been spreading it over the month ahead, and so uh, you know three or four virtual meetups a week where people you know give their their talks. Those get you know in front of a live audience. Those get recorded, and they're you know being made available as they go. And then you know ChefConf uh, will be keynotes and a few customer talks, and that's it. So uh, more more uh, more tailored towards uh, consuming as you go than trying to fit it all into one day. Big big bang kind of thing. All right. Well, I like it. ChefConf. I like I like uh, consume as you go. It makes it a little bit easier. And then. Uh, KubeCon officially announced their conference. It'll be August 17th through the 20th. And uh, you can do online registration now. I think it does. I think they're going to charge though, $75. So I, I don't know. There have probably been others, but maybe the first conference I've seen uh, from a virtual standpoint charge. So want to know. I'm interested to hear how it goes. So if you attend that or anything like that, let me know. I want to I hear if it was worth it. And then our friends at MongoDB, they're going to have their big event, mongodb.live. That's the URL. It's on June 9th and 10th. Uh, so make sure to check that one out. And then we did uh, get a little feedback this week. I sent some stickers to Tim in Vernon Hills, Illinois. So I appreciate him writing in. If you would like a sticker, just send me your postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com. 
and I will send you a, a free laptop stickers or a whole bunch of them. Just tell me how many you want. Happy to do it. Um, it's it's all, always fun to hear from our listeners. Also, I thought I would mention um, some people in Slack have been posting people who are hiring. So if you uh, find yourself looking for a job for a, a bunch of different reasons, you can go into the Software Defined Talk Slack. Uh, you can join that by going to softwaredefinedtalk.com. Uh, the people that were hiring this week that mentioned it was uh, Ryan says there are, hey, you're going to find this surprising, Matt, Data Dog. They're hiring. You know, so I guess oh. things are going pretty well there. Um, Loop Rock says they're hiring at uh, Ethos here in Austin. And then our friends at MongoDB, Dominic, says they're also hiring as well. So if you want to apply for any of those jobs, probably you went into Slack and you responded and got in touch with them, they'd probably give you some like some good tips on what those companies are looking for. Um, and, you know, anyone feel free to throw some jobs in there and I'll try to mention them on the show as I know various people are looking for various reasons. And having said all that, Matt, what is your recommendation this week? Uh, yeah. So uh, my recommendation is uh, Starship. Uh, so, just hanging out in the uh, the software defined Slack, minding my own business, and somebody dropped uh, Starship.rs um, in there, and it is a replacement for your prompt, which you know sounds kind of nerdy, but um, having you know spending a fair amount of time at the uh, the CLI and the console, uh, I had greatly modified my PS1. So you know all the little things around your your command line about where you are and what you're doing and uh, Starship is a heck of a lot easier than all the bash that I had written. So I gutted it out and switched over and uh, highly, highly recommend it. It's, it's pretty awesome. More command line, always more command line. I love it. So, all right. Well, I, this week um, I'm calling this, I finished the Facebook trilogy of audiobooks. So I started, I guess a couple years ago with chaos monkeys. That's sort of like, you know, the beginning of Facebook through the IPO and somebody wrote a book called just Facebook that kind of takes you through all the acquisition of WhatsApp and all the craziness there. And then this one uh, that I finished this week is called No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram. And Matt, I want to make sure that you, you, you leave a little happy here. So I thought I'd just play a little clip. I always wondered how many people got rich at, uh, on Instagram. So here's, here's a quick little excerpt of what the author found out. So take a listen. But if the Instagrammers accepted Facebook job offers... Facebook would cancel their stock options in Instagram and grant them restricted stock units in Facebook instead. Their equity vesting schedule would start over, as if they hadn't already worked many months. Only three employees had been at Instagram long enough to have the option to buy a quarter of their Instagram shares. And <laughs> So there you have it, Matt. That it's, uh, it's hard to make money. Even when you're at the hottest startup in the world, very, very few people actually had a chance to win. Uh, to get any money. So if you want to hear more about Instagram, go listen to that audiobook. But, you know, it makes me feel good that, hey, sometimes, you know, even when you're in the right place, you're not in the right place. They should have gone to Datadog. <laughs> That's right. They should have gone to Datadog. All right. Well, if this is the first time you've ever listened to Software Defined Talk, uh, we're glad you're here. If you would like to subscribe, probably subscribe right now in the podcast player you're listening to or go to softwaredefinedtalk.com. There you can subscribe using all kinds of links to all kinds of uh, podcast players. And with that, we will talk to you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>